Beloved, life is full of contrasts, yin and yang, peas and carrots, good and bad, hot and old, young and poor. How about young and old and rich and poor? The contrast, some are more comparative, some are more opposing. Uh, for in most cases, they have to be at least one way or another at different end of the spectrum. Uh, you can't have two things completely opposite and even have a meaningful contrast. And by way of introduction, as we've been going through Hebrews, we know that a primary motif, a primary theme that the author is bringing out for nine and a half chapters all the way up into chapter 10 are the great contrast between the old and the new. That has been the case through the entire epistle and certainly as we are now reaching the grand climax of the main doctrinal portion of this letter which runs from chapter 1 verse 1 all the way through chapter uh, 10 verse 18 that in these last 18 verses of this section that is our passage Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 18 that these contrasts are a powerful element of this passage that we have here before us and at the same time there is repetition to be sure with topic and ground that the author has covered before yet the author brings fresh insight and fresh focus even as we look at this text the contrast this morning, primarily in these 18 verses, are between the first and the second, and between the many offerings of the first and the one offering of the second, using language from the text. Beloved, if you haven't yet, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, and follow along as I read the Word of God here this morning. Hebrews chapter 10, and verse 1, the author writes, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. Four. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the roll of the book it is written of me, To do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you've not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, then he said, behold, I've come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. 
4, by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and upon their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. And beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, we have an outline for us here this morning. It's certainly built into the text at one level. In the first four verses, beloved, the author is repeating topics he's covered before. And the focus in verses 1 through 4 is the shadowy, impotent repetition of the first. And then the latter 14 verses, the author will turn verses 5 through 18 to the bodily, obedient finality of the second. And I'll have three subpoints when we get to the second. The intent here, beloved, for the author when he's writing to this original audience of Jewish believers some 2,000 years ago, God's purpose for you and for me in the entirety of this epistle, in this crescendo climax of the doctrinal section, is that you and I would hold firmly to the faith that we confess. And as such, that we may therefore come boldly and approach the very throne of grace, the very presence of God, and that we would rest securely in the once-for-all offering that was made through the death of Jesus of Nazareth. Beloved, let's first look at the shadowy, impotent repetition of the first that we see in the first Four verses. The first offering, the first offerings. There were many offerings in the Old Covenant. Now, as we've been going through Hebrews, when we come to the topic of Christ's unique sacrifice, one might think that the author has sufficiently proven his point that is there anything else to be said? Uh, we saw, for example, back in chapter 7, verse 19, the author there told us that the law made nothing perfect. So why would the author, the law made nothing perfect, so why would the author bring these up again? But what we have here in these four verses is a succinct statement, a purposeful recapitulation, repetition of what he said before, again, with fresh insight and focus. And the first offerings were shadowy. This is how the author begins. Look at verse 1. The New American Standard reads, For the law since it has only a shadow of the good things to come. In the original language, he actually throws that word shadow to the very beginning of the phrase. It literally says, for shadow, the law having of the good things to come. The author is driving home the point of the ephemeral, shadowy nature of the old covenant many offerings. Uh, Even from the physical world, as we would extend our understanding of the word shadow, a shadow is bound to, it is a reflection of, and represents the true form which casts it. But it is not the same thing as the very form, not the same thing as the substance. That's why in the middle of verse 1, the author says, and not the very form of things. Uh, The word form here, it's the Greek word akon. Uh, We get the English word icon from it. And it was actually quite fascinating, if you'll uh, tolerate me here for a second, when my wonderful son Jaden and I were flying back towards home on Thursday 
we were in Athens in the Lufthansa Lounge. And I, we were in Greece, and I was studying the Greek text of this passage, and a dude walked by with a black shirt with big white letters that said icon. And I thought, how fascinating. This <laughs> was kind of a providential bone that God's thrown me. I'm not sure the main point here, but it was quite fascinating <laughs> to be studying the Greek text of this here icon and then in Greece and have that happen to me. Beloved, the point here is the shadow is not the form. Uh, the same word, akon, is used in Christ's response to the religious leaders. Do you remember when the religious leaders of Israel were trying to trap Jesus around the subject of taxation? And they were asking him whether or not it was lawful to pay a tax to Caesar. And he said, well, take out a coin. And then they brought out a coin with the emblazoned image of Caesar. And he said, whose likeness, whose icon, whose icon is on this? And what inscription is this? And the point was the coin wasn't a shadow of Caesar. It wasn't a mere hint that such a man existed. It was the emperor's very features portrayed on a coin. And back here in Hebrews, as we continue chapter 10, verse 1, the author is driving home the fact that the law, which is a shadow and not the very form, look at what the text now says, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Because of the shadowy nature of it, it cannot do these things. And beloved, to draw near to God, that is man's main goal. That is the highest aim for man or for woman. Ever since Adam and Eve, from the time before the fall, when they walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day, from that time forward when the world, the universe was thrust into the despair of sin, that is the primary goal of man and should be. And what the author is bringing out here is that you can't pile up shadows to get the substance, to be able to draw near to the holy God. A shadow can never claim to be a complete revelation of its very form. And by way of particular application for this Jewish group of believers who are being drawn back to their old sacrificial system, and even the temple, which was still standing, and the sacrifices were still being given at that time, the author's point is once the true form is seen, the shadow and the shadows become irrelevant. So, the first offerings were shadowy. They were also repetitive. They were repeated. Look at verse 2. He says, he asks a rhetorical question. He says, otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. And the, the once that he puts in there is in contrast to the continually that it, we saw back in verse 1. And what he's saying here is the, that if the offering had been and done what it was supposed to do, then they wouldn't have to keep on giving the offering. So the mere fact that they had to keep on giving sacrifice after sacrifice, offer after offering, demonstrates that there's no substance behind it. And what the author is saying here, what he's not saying here is he's not saying that there is no cleansing of any kind in the offerings. He's not saying that there is no forgiveness of any kind. Uh, for example, Leviticus chapter 4, verse 35, God instructed the nation of Israel in this way, the priest shall make atonement for him, a person that had brought the offering, in regard to a sin which he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. 
And we also see that in three other verses in Leviticus chapter 4. But the point is, in Leviticus, and certainly the point here in Hebrews 10, is there was not absolute cleansing. There was not total and final forgiveness. Because, beloved, the law couldn't do anything to alleviate the guilt of the human conscience. God has always been concerned about the internal, even when he gave the external ordinances and commands surrounding the offerings of the first. The focus was always on the internal rather than the external. And the author continues, verse 3, he says, but in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year. Beloved, those many offerings were given again and again. There were daily offerings. There were weekly offerings. There were annual offerings on the great day of atonement. The bottom line was the number of offerings, as many as there were, couldn't keep up with the sins of the people. And so far from erasing sin, rather they only underlined sin as a constant reminder of our need for the blotting out of our sins. And it, this is the reason why the first prepares the way for the second. The old covenant, beloved, reveals our need for a new covenant, for the new covenant. And even the reminder, those many repetitive shadowy sacrifices were a reminder of sin. That word reminder, this is the very same word that Jesus used when in the day and in the evening of his crucifixion, when he was in the upper room, when he was instituting the Lord's table, when he was instituting and ordaining communion, you remember Jesus said that he had taken bread, he had given thanks, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You see, the many sacrifices of the first were a constant reminder of guilt. The one sacrifice of the new is a reminder of grace, of God's grace at work in your forgiveness and my forgiveness. Continuing on as we go to verse 4, the offerings were shadowy, they were repetitive, and they were impotent. Verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Adunitas, literally powerless. This is a very strong, very intense, very definitive word. It appears four times in Hebrews. It's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible to please God without faith. And it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. You see, beloved, even from the very beginning, the onus, the imperative, the purpose to take away sins was always above the pay grade of bulls and goats. It required something better. And understand this, as the author here is setting the stage for the second, setting the stage for the internal nature of a heart of devotion and obedience that lays the foundation for the second, he is drawing attention away from the external to the internal, and he wasn't the first man or woman to appreciate this and understand this. King David, after David, who's described as a man after God's own heart, committed his great sins of adultery and murder. Remember, he had true repentance demonstrated in Psalm 51, which focused on the internal. Verse 10 and verses 16 and 17, David cries out to God, Create in me a clean heart, O God, 
and renew a steadfast spirit within me. For you don't delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it you. You aren't pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. You see the internal focus. It's the same thing for David, the same thing for the author of Hebrews. It's the same thing for you and me. Now, beloved, in these 18 verses we have here in our passage, there are actually no imperatives in all 18 of these verses. There's no command. So I'll supply a few for you. Uh, we begin by understanding this. There is a difference between being conscious of sin and being guilt-ridden by sin. As believers, as adopted sons and daughters, we are, we should be sensitive to sin. And at the same time, we are gloriously delivered from the fear of judgment for our sin. Because we know Christ has paid the price. We can ask the question, I can ask the question, how do I know that I'm walking with God? When the Holy Spirit pricks your conscience, do you bleed repentance? Do you go to the Lord, do you repent of your sin and go to the Lord in confession and for cleansing? Beloved, part of my regularly weekly preparation for sermon, even daily, even on the Lord's Day morning, is praying the prayer of 1 John 1, 9. Remember what John said there? He said, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As I dare as a frail man enter the pulpit to minister the word of God to you, beloved, on a weekly basis on Lord's Day morning, I say, God, forgive me my sins and cleanse me from unrighteousness. Let this frail man be a suitable vessel by your grace and mercy for this ministry. Uh, Solomon said in Proverbs 28, verse 13, great statement. He said, he who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes will find compassion. Beloved, the application is repent and confess. So that is the shadowy, impotent repetition of the first, which sets the stage for the bodily obedient finality of the second, which we see in verses 5 through 18. And what we will see is with the focus turning away from the contrast to the many offerings of the first to the one singular offering of the second is that his offering is sanctifying. It is singular and it is settled. You see, the first offerings in God's economy temporarily suspended judgment. The second offering permanently secures your redemption. That is God's point, God's lesson to you and to me. So let's look at verses 5 through 10 where we see that the offering, the once for all offering, is sanctifying. It secures total forgiveness and sanctification for God's people. It secures your total forgiveness and sanctification as God's child. Look at verse 5. The author says, therefore, as a result of what he had just written and we just read in the first four verses, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you've not desired. 
What the author is doing here is what he's been doing throughout the book already. This is another one of his direct quotations from the Old Testament, in this case, from Psalm 40. Psalm 40 is a psalm of David. When I read the first 11 verses in our scripture reading this morning, those were David's words coming out from David's heart. But the author here, the author of Hebrews, God makes David's words Christ's words. And we can even now ask the question, who wrote the Bible? Did David write? Well, David wrote part of the Bible. But in terms of God, did the Holy Spirit write the Bible? Did the Father write the Bible? Did Jesus write? Did the Son write the Bible? And the author is yes. The triune God is the author of Scripture. He superintended the human authors. To be sure, there's a special emphasis on the Holy Spirit, but the Son and the Father are also spoken of as having written Scripture. And in fact, that's exactly what we see here in these verses 5 through 10, where four times we have it attributed that Psalm 40 are the words of the Son, are the words of Jesus Christ. Christ. So turn for a moment to 2 Peter chapter 1. Just by way of illustration of this, another portion that tells us that in this case, both God the Father and God the Holy Spirit were the author of Scripture, but it also, I think, speaks to the dynamic of the Word of God and the power of the book that you have in your hands. 2 Peter 1 verse 19, and this is coming right after Peter talked about how he himself, Peter the Apostle, saw Christ transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter the Apostle, who is writing these words, heard the audible voice of God the Father speaking to God the Son. And that sets the stage for what he now writes in verse 19. He says, and we have the prophetic word more sure. What Peter is saying there is as powerful as it was for Peter to see the man Jesus Christ glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration. He audibly heard the voice of God speaking from heaven, God the Father about God the Son. The prophetic word, the book you have in your hands, is more sure, is more powerful than even an experience like that. That's why he says, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Uh, people many times get confused at that point. They think, well, am I, am I not supposed, do I not have a responsibility as a student of the Word of God, as an approved workman or an approved workwoman that need not be ashamed to understand Scripture? And the source of that problem is not understanding that what is being spoken of here, as you'll see in a second in verse 21, is it's not talking about the reception of Scripture. It's talking about the origin, the authorship, the writing of Scripture. Look at verse 21. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Beloved, this is the word of God that you have in your hands that you and I are studying here together. And in that case, we saw both God the Father and God the Holy Spirit at work. But now back still in verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 10, we move to the bodily aspect of the one offering of the second. He says, but a body you prepared for me. A body, he's referring to the incarnation. 
The second offering, bloody, uh, beloved, was bodily. It was corporeal. The first was shadowy. It was ephemeral. But it speaks directly to how the Son delivered you. You can ask the question, how am I forgiven of my sins? What, what is it that Jesus did ultimately if we were to zero in on a primary aspect of what Jesus did to secure your salvation? Was it his life? Was it his teaching? Was it his example? Was it his miracles? I mean, all of those are certainly essential elements of the ministry of Jesus. But the answer was his body, his blood that he shed in the dust of the hill of Calvary some 2,000 years ago that secured your salvation. He delivered you by his death. And the point of contrast the author is bringing out here is that his blood, unlike the blood of the animals, washes sins away forever. This is a sacrifice. This is an offering on an entirely different plane. That's why the author continues, verse 6, in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you've taken no pleasure. Again, that's a direct quote from Psalm 40. And we can ask the question, how is it that God didn't take any pleasure in a system in work that he himself ordained. The bottom line is God never sought empty words nor empty ritual. Uh, the tendency, you see, for sinful man is to make the system an end in and of itself. But that was never the end. That was never the purpose. The same kind of language God gave through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 1, verse 11, God is speaking to the nation of Israel, and he says, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says Yahweh. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. Same statement from Isaiah as in David, and now put in the words of Jesus himself from the author of Hebrews. You see, beloved, the many offerings of the old, the many offerings of the first, had religious worth only insofar as they were a tangible expression of a devout and obedient heart. That's why God said, speaking more on the positive side of what it is, Hosea 6, verse 6, God says, I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. You see, the significance of the sacrifice was never in the animal's blood. It was in the worshiper's heart. Genuine devoted service, the internal over the external. It might help us to understand this, a simple comparison. God took no pleasure in the offerings in the same way as a parent takes no pleasure in the medicine that he or she gives to the child. You see, the parents only pleased with the medicine because the medicine makes the little girl better. But the parent would rather the child was never sick in the first place. In the same way, beloved, God takes no pleasure in the offerings, except in the fact that the many offerings of the first point to the one offering of the second. God's not interested in religious ritual if it's not driven by faith and obedience. Uh, we can sum it up this way. Faith without works are meaningless in God's eyes. That's what James wrote in James <clears throat> chapter 
too, and that is the same dynamic here. Jesus himself, when Jesus, remember, he captured the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Mark 12, 33, he says, loving the Lord your God with all your strength, might, soul, and to love one's neighbor, the second greatest commandment, as himself, watch this, is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And by way of application, beloved, for you and me on this side of the cross, 1 Peter 2, verse 24, Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body, the bodily aspect on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So he died, his body was sacrificed so that you and I would be saved and spend eternity in heaven in his presence. And on this side of glory, on the side of eternity, on the side of walking the streets of Zion, as we sang before, that you and I would die to sin, practically speaking, and live to righteousness. So the second offering was corporeal, it was also bodily, it was also obedient. And what we see here as we move to verse 7 is that his offering did away with the first and his obedience established the second. In verse 7, then I said, behold, I've come in the roll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. This is the obedience. And what's interesting is what was the desired goal of David in Psalm 40 becomes the declarative, definitive statement in the case of Jesus. And then in verse 8, he gives a repetition of verses 5 through 7 of the sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings that God doesn't take pleasure in. He lists four different kinds of offerings in verse 8, again, repeating verses 5 through 7, that span the entire sacrificial system from Moses to Christ. And what the author is saying is that this is God's will from the beginning. Behold, I have come to do your will. Again, that was David's heart cry. That was David's goal. That was Jesus' definitive statement. The Father's will and the Son's obedience. That's why this is a bodily obedient final offering, final sacrifice. You see, beloved, I am a lawbreaker. Jesus is the law keeper. He fulfills all God's demands for justice. God demands the law be kept. Jesus kept it. God demands that penalty will be paid for sin. Christ paid this penalty. And he takes away the first in order to establish the second. You see that at the end of verse 8. That's the intent. And the author, what he does here is he punctuates the termination of the old covenant sacrificial system forcefully, as forcefully as he can. The word takes away here in verse 8 literally means to abolish or to slay or to kill. In fact, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the same word is used to translate the Hebrew word to kill. The author wants us to understand. He wanted the original audience, as they were getting tempted to go back to the old, don't do it because Jesus exterminated that. He abolished that. And he takes away the first to establish, to stand up the second. Note here, beloved, this is, in a word, the replacement of the old covenant with the new covenant. This is not the replacement of 
Israel with the church. That's an entirely different matter. This is the replacement of the old covenant of the first by the new covenant, the second. And while this abolishing, this killing that old system is good news for bulls and goats, it's even better news for you and for me. We saw that there's a constant reminder of guilt in the first. This is in great contrast to the reminder of grace that we find here in the second. So the second offering was bodily, it was obedient, and it was final. He says, continuing on, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Have been sanctified, set apart, made holy, consecrated. And the grammar the author uses here means it's a completed final act. You are positionally set apart once for all by God when he saves you, when you trust in Christ alone by faith alone. You are completely, eternally, gloriously separated to God. Beloved, by virtue of your union with Christ, you are now in the realm of the holy and the purified. We are set apart for all time from the contamination we had and the condemnation we deserved to a perfect position before God so that you are acceptable to the holy God of heaven. That is what he is saying. You are sanctified positionally, perfectly, completely, objectively, and eternally. This kind of sanctification which positionally takes place at your conversion is glory begun. And just a note here, it is through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. We've, we've seen the Son. The author opens up with the Son back in Hebrews chapter 1. We've seen Jesus and we've seen Christ. But this is the first appearance of the combination Jesus Christ. And what the author is doing is he's saved that combination for the climax of his doctrinal arguments. There are many pulpits in the world, in the English-speaking world, maybe in the non-English-speaking world, that have a plaque of John 12, 21 on the pulpit. Sir, we would see Jesus. That is the goal, beloved, of your ministry. That is the goal of my ministry. When I dare ascend to minister the word of God here, I have the heart cry of the congregation, Sir, we would see Jesus. When Tim does it, when Scott, David last week, uh, you delightful ladies in the women's ministry, you come alongside so that the, your beloved fellow ladies would see Jesus. That's what's going on right now in the children's ministry. This is the story of redemption in all of Scripture, culminating here in the passage we have here for this morning. And zeroing in, understand this. This bodily aspect of his sacrifice, the incarnation, the incarnation was for the purpose of atonement. He was born to save his people. That's why they named him Jesus, because he will save his people. Bethlehem was for Calvary, and the atonement explains the incarnation and both natures of the Son human and divine, Jesus Christ, are involved in this atonement, in this redemption. So his offering is sanctifying, verses 5 through 10. His offering is also singular. We see this in verses 11 through 14. He is, Jesus Christ, is the man who dies. 
He's the priest who sits. He's the enthroned high priest. Verse 11, the author says, And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices. They keep standing because they have to keep working. The old covenant priests are ever standing and never seated. And that's partly because the text continues, these sacrifices can never take away sins. This is a different word, take away. This basically having something that surrounds something and you take that away, like peeling off an unwanted cloak. And the reality is that we are born sinners. Our every ounce, every atom of our being is pervaded with sin. That doesn't mean that we do every evil thing as evilly as we would want to do them right when we do them. God's common mercy restrains that, but we are born totally depraved. And those sacrifices, the blood of bull and goats, cannot strip away that sin. But he, but he, verse 12, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, continuous, uninterrupted, eternally, all time, is able to take away, strip away the surrounding sin and the pervading, permeating sin from you and from me. Beloved, this is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. The one offering ends the many offerings. And what we see here is the singular character of Christ's sacrifice is seen in his one sacrifice and in his enthronement. Verse 12, continuing, he sat down at the right hand of God. This is called the session of Christ, the ministerial and throne sitting ministry of Jesus. Now, that's a theological phrase. You can think of the phrase, the court is in session. I looked at Scott Mom this morning when I said that. The court is in session. The Senate is in session. Beloved, Jesus is in session now in heaven on your behalf. And a seated priest is the guarantee of a finished work and an accepted sacrifice. Beloved, his ministry on your behalf at the right hand of God is on the basis of his sacrifice that was presented and is accepted, as the text here says, for all time. And, verse 13, is he is waiting for final judgment. The final judgment holds no fear for you and for me because our sins have been taken away by his sacrifice. But he himself, verse 13, is waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. This is the third quotation from Psalm 110, verse 1 in Hebrews. Uh, the author also quotes Psalm 110, verse 4, seven times, but this is describing the ultimate victory and conquering over all his enemies of Christ. And he is waiting patiently for it. He's like the farmer that James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote about in James chapter 5, verse 7, who the farmer, after he planted his field, waited patiently for the precious produce of the soil. In the same way, Lord Jesus waits patiently for the harvest of his righteous judgment. And understand this, even this prolonging this day of salvation before that day of judgment is a token of God's unfathomable mercy 
and grace and patience and long-suffering. That's why in Proverbs 30, verse 18, you'll read the words, The Lord, Yahweh, longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. Uh, I'm going to read an extended quote from a commentator, Pastor Forsyth, from the early 20th century. Just great statement of the doctrine of what is being brought out here and this final judgment of what it is and what it's not for you and for me in Christ. This is what Pastor Forsyth wrote, quote, The absolute ultimate judgment of the world took place in Christ's death. There God spoke his last word, his last endless word. The last moral reality is there, the last standard, the last judgment. The last judgment is behind us. The true judgment seat of Christ, where we must all appear, is the cross. And we don't realize in the meantime that the prince of this world has been finally judged and that we lived, in a sense, in a saved world, only because we also live in a judged world. Now, Christ is not judged merely for some future coming. He's eternal judge in his great work as the crucified, a work historic yet timeless and final. In him, the prince of this world has been finally and effectually judged and the absolute condemnation passed. The absolute and irreversible judgment was passed upon evil. There too, Forsyth continues, turning the attention towards our blessing. There, too, the judgment of our sins fell once for all on the Holy One, the Just One. The judgment Christ exercises stands on the judgment He endured. He assumes judgment because He absorbed judgment. End quote. Beloved, that is the work of Christ on our behalf. Verse 14 For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Literally, those who are being sanctified. Yeah, you may remember back in verse 10, he used the grammar there talking about our sanctification as a past perfect tense. Our sanctification as a past completed act. Done once for all. Here, he's describing the ongoing, the process of sanctification where you and I are transformed from glory to glory. Where we are made and molded and sharpened and refined and pounded more and more into the image of Christ. Understanding more and more the mind of Christ as he reveals it in Scripture. I remember a newcomer's lunch, a few newcomer's lunches ago, a few months ago, where we had a question at the end of the newcomers, and the question was something along the lines of, in the context of sanctification, uh, were we sanctified once at conversion, or are we being sanctified? And the elders graciously let me field that one, and my answer was yes. It's a both and. We were sanctified we were sanctified positionally, perfectly, completely, objectively, and eternally. And, beloved, you are being sanctified practically, experientially, and subjectively. Verse 10 is sanctification is glory begun. Verse 14 is glory is sanctification completed. Your sanctification is fully received and not yet fully achieved. It's an already not yet. As good, beloved, as good as what you enjoy now in Christ, there's better yet to come. So 
The offering is sanctifying, it is singular. Finally, in verses 15 through 18, his offering is settled. It is final. It is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, is bearing witness to us. This is the inspiration of Scripture. This is the present tense dynamic of as we read these words, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, is bearing witness, martyreo. He's martyring in the sense of bearing witness of this truth to you and to me as we read these words. And this is from the writings of Jeremiah. What the author does here in verses 15 and forward through 17, he continues his great exposition of God's promise to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, the new covenant promise where God takes Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, back in chapter 8. He quoted that at great length. And what the author does here is he quotes it again, continuing this great exposition to let us know this. The new covenant was new at that point in time, but it wasn't new revelation. Jesus' sacrifice was fulfillment of an old revelation that God had promised back in Jeremiah 31. You'll see that in verses 15 and 16. And what God says at the end of verse 16 is, I will put my laws upon their heart and upon their mind. I will write them. And then he says, forgiven sin is forgetting sin. He then says, verse 17, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. I apologize, I confused verse 16 and 17, but you have the text there and you're common sense people. Hopefully you can read that on your own. But the point here is forgiven sin is forgotten sin. The many sacrifices of the old were the continual reminder of our sinful state. But what he says here is God himself, who is omniscience, will remember your sins no more. That's exactly what Kyle said in part of his shepherding this morning between songs, that our sins, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed even the remembrance of them. What that means is your iniquities, your transgressions, your sins are eternally blotted out from God's record, never to be brought up as evidence against you. In the law, there's an annual reminder of sins, but in the new covenant, there's no remembrance. And that takes us now to verse 18, the grand conclusion of the doctrinal portion of this great epistle. How, when we think that he's finishing up with this last verse before he launches into an application-oriented closing portion, what's he going to say? This, now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Forgiveness, a sending away, a pardon, where there's release from bondage or imprisonment. There's no longer any offering for sin. Why would he say that again? We've seen that before. I mean, for you and for me, I would say for the vast majority of us, if not for all of us, the words there's no longer any offering for sin is kind of matter of fact. But Again, for a 2,000-year-old Jewish believer with the pressure, with the temple still going on, these words strike with thunderous finality. Think of how unsettling it was for that group of believers, how devastating and challenging it would have been. They were no longer in the temple. They were, in a sense, disenfranchised and disinherited from their very history. 
They were again, in a sense, excommunicated from the realm that had previously provided them security and stability. That's why there is this great importance here. That's why they can't reject Jesus Christ and the new covenant. If they were to do that, they would be rejecting Jeremiah and even the Holy Spirit uh, by way of the author's argument. Beloved, an act that's final doesn't tolerate repetition. And that's why we don't have an altar up here. That's why Tim's not going to be waiting out in the courtyard with a knife. There's no animals to be sacrificed. I mean, Joe's barbecue is a different thing, but <laughs> they've already, I actually I pulled that one off here. <laughs> there's no sacrifices. There's, there's no channels out there to carry the, that they, when they made the temple, they had channels carved because of all the blood for the daily, weekly animal sacrifices. We don't have any of that. This is why we don't have a altar for a Roman Catholic mass. There's no repetition. There's no blasphemous re-sacrifice of the body of Christ. It was done once for all, and it is a memorial that we celebrate once a month here right now at Santan Bible Church of the Lord's Table. That's why we have tables for the Lord's Supper at the front of our worship service on the first Sunday of the month, because it's a new covenant memorial service where Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Beloved, the enemy likes to get us rummaging around in the dustbin of forgiven sin. And the point of the arrow of the argument of the first nine and a half chapters and of this passage right here is given in verse 18. This verse is the summary of everything we read up to this point. Hebrews in a verse, you could understand verse 18. And what he wants you and I to understand is the remedy God has given and provided you is full and final. There's no need for an altar. There's no returning to the temple. And beloved, the soul that rests on this one offering will spend eternity in the delight of heaven because the gospel transforms the remembrance of guilt into a remembrance of grace. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you for your great sacrifice. Lord, we can't imagine what it was like. We can't imagine the, the physical agony and torture of the crucifixion. We especially can't even begin to imagine what it was like for you after 30 plus years of perfect communion in your humanity with God, your Father, to be have that broken, to experience the wrath of God poured out on you at the cross, to experience his displeasure and his wrath. But we praise you and thank you, Lord Jesus, of what that means for us, what that means for us praising you in heaven and all eternity. Help us to do that here and now in real and practical, practical and demonstrable ways. We pray, Lord God, that you would be glorified in all that we do, and it is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray and that we sing. Amen.